Welcome to the Pacific Point Church Podcast, where we're learning to love and live like Jesus. During this half hour, we're praying that God will direct, encourage, and speak to you. If you would like to partner with Pacific Point Church and our church plants, you can download the Pacific Point Church app at the App Store or visit us at pacificpointchurch.com give. At that same site, you can also watch and listen to previous sermons, read follow-up blog posts and extended notes, and even connect with Pacific Point Church on social media. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. All right. Hey, uh, if you're new here, I want to welcome you and say thanks for coming. We are a church that's learning to love and live like Jesus. That's our mission. That's what we believe God has called us to. And uh, the, the values, what we believe are up, in, and out. That we value a relationship with God first and foremost, which leads to out, or in, excuse me, in relationships in the church, in our small groups, in our communities, and then eventually goes out. It's sharing our grace stories with others. So that's what we value as a church. That's who we are. Um, we, I keep it kind of simple because I like to go the least common denominator, and me and Eddie are the least common denominator. So we can remember this. So this is, this is who we are as a church. Um, we are in this Lent season and we are going through this book. If, if you don't, I don't know how many more of these we have. Do, is this it? I got to order some more. Okay. Um, we are going through this. It's a, a great Jesuit priest, uh, uh, sacred space, uh, devotional for every day. It's wonderful. I've got five left. If you would like a copy, please come and grab one. But we are, are, are going through that as a church and each day and just reading a different scripture. And then I'm preaching out of that when we preach throughout the week. So we are in the story of the rich man in, a, in, in, in purple and Lazarus, which is in Luke 16. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen. There are Bibles in the backs of the seats that you can use. You know, we should start. We should probably, we, you know, it would be cool is if we started bringing Bibles to the church. I should, that, that almost makes sense. Bibles at church. Isn't that kind of cool? But, you know, what, you got them on your phone, too. A lot of Q. What do you think? You know, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's let's start. I want to read. Let me let me pray before we read. There's there's a lot here today, and I want to make sure I do uh, the word justice. So, Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that your word, uh, Lord, we can stand on it, Father God. And it is you are faithful in your word, Father God. So, Lord, as we uh, as I speak today, Father God, give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would put me aside and that you, Holy Spirit, would speak through me today. And God, that you would allow us to see, Father God. Let us see what you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, come into this place in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 So let's read this story. It says this. Then there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted that, how do you pronounce that? Sumptuously. I, I always like get all the sumptuously every day. And at the gate he laid a poor man, there laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed what was what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels into Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
in, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, my father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they should come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear from Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a lot there. Has, has anybody read that story and kind of just ever thought, what, what are they talking about here? There's all these interesting pictures in Abraham's bosom and, and, and different uh, just analogies and things that are going on. I, I want to first take a real big broad picture and, and, and paint with a broad brush around the theology of what's going on here. Because it really, the, the, what it says historically and what we're looking at really sets the foundation for where we're going. This is the only place or only parable that does not limit the events to this life only. It talks about the afterlife also. So it's not just in this place when Jesus talks, but it's also in the afterlife. And there's three key things that, that I, I, you got to look at. He talks about Abraham's side. Abraham's side represents, and we look and scholars say, it's, it's literally paradise. You could interchange it, paradise, as Abraham's side. Hades, Sheol, and Gehenna are three words that are used for hell. So he says, he goes to Abraham's side, and then he says of the poor man, he talks of Hades, and in another translation, Sheol. These are places that are described as words for hell. But there's another word that Jesus uses further down that's called Gehenna. Gehenna is a permanent place. Hades and Sheol are a holding place. Now, let's, let's look at this picture. Let's think about this. This is Abraham's side, a place that is paradise. But what we're looking at is Jesus was still there. So what, when we look at this, there's a place before Jesus went to the cross and died and called all the saints to him that the saints were. This place called Abraham's side. And also there's this place called Hades and Sheol, which is really was this holding place. And still today, this place that is hell, that isn't permanent hell, which is Gehenna. Have I lost you yet? Not yet. Okay. So he, he's, he's trying to describe this very, but there's an interesting thing. It says, but Abraham le- replied, what did Abraham reply to? He replied to the, the rich man who asked for help, which infers that there was this literal ability to see into 
this place called paradise and paradise to see into this place called hell. Literally, there's this ability to understand that there are people here that are tortured, that are in pain and suffering, separated from God by their own choice. And there's this place of paradise where they see that there's something different. That's a wild thought. And that's what we see here. Big picture, theology. I love this. Craig Bloomberg, as a theologian, said this. One of the driving points of this story is that the wicked man will see the righteous in happiness and themselves in torment, and that a great gulf exists between them, which we will never be, which will never be spanned. That's what it says in verse 26. Think about this for one second. Take a moment and just think about this. What might it be like if you don't have a relationship with Jesus? What might it be like if you reject Jesus? You say, I don't need you. I will take this life on my own. You stand before God and he says, okay, you're on your own. What might it be like to sit in a place called hell where there's pain and suffering? where the, the, the fire cannot be quenched, and you're able to think of your life and think about the time that Pete came and told you about Jesus or fed you like Jesus might have. You're in hell and you're thinking about the time that Mark said something about Jesus and you said, I don't need that stuff. That's right. You think about that time that any one of you, Madison at school, that, that, that someone said, I don't need Jesus. Can you tell me anything that would be more painful and torturous than thinking in your mind that I rejected the very one who loved me and wanted to give my life to me? That's hell. Can you imagine what that might be like as we see the picture and what it says? There are two specific truths that, that we're faced with in this parable. I mean, there, there's more. There are two that I really want to sit in that I think are important. And one is our direct relationship to God, which is one of our values, intimacy with God. One is our relationship with God, a personal relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. That's our relationship up. The other is our direct relationship to others. Being alert to others' needs that are right under your noses. Being aware of others that you live next door to, that you work with, whatever it might be. Right. That's the in and out. I, I want to look at those. But first, we look at the two players in this story. We have the rich man and the fine linen and everything that he could want and every luxury that he could want in life. And then we have the beggar, Lazarus. We can look and interchange these metaphorically. We can look and say that, 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 that some of us are in this place that this beggar is where we feel like, you know, that we can't get the upper hand. We can't move on, whatever it might be. And you look at others and you go, how do they prosper? How do they do it? We see two men, a rich man and a poor man. What I love about the gospel is this. The gospel levels the playing field. The gospel, the good news of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, it absolutely levels the playing field. It puts everything on the same plane. Three ways that I want to show you that it does it today. Through creation, through death, and through judgment. These three things level the playing field for every one of us. First of all, through creation. The Lord is the maker of them all. Proverbs 22, 2 says this, that God made you specifically. Heidi, when were you born? February. February what? 15th. 
What, uh, you don't tell what year. Uh, I almost got you there. Uh, in February 15, 1978, God made Heidi and put her on this earth, very specifically. It says this in Psalm 139, 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The playing field is leveled in this, that each one of us, every one of you, was created by a creator. There's nothing that we see in life. And this is the argument that we have with atheists. There's nothing that you can see in the natural that doesn't scream to a creator. This building, these chairs, that camera, whatever it might be. Yet we say there's no creator of us. See, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, this beautiful picture levels the playing field and says this, there is a creator. (laughs) And he knew you before the foundations of the earth. That's right. And his thoughts for you are as numerous as the sand of the sea. The rich man was created by God. The poor man, the beggar, both created by God. Why is one rich and one's not? Why does one have disease and one not? Why does one live here and the other one doesn't? Why does one get and one doesn't get? Why does one lose and one win? I don't know. I don't get it. In fact, I don't like it. And it's not fair. The only problem with fair, there's no such thing as fair. Except for Orange County, fair, because that's a good one. (laughs) Thank you. LA's not so bad either. (sighs) I don't know why. I can't answer the questions. I don't understand why someone is begging and someone has more than... uh, Our government seems to think they know why. They don't. But I know this. The creator of heaven and earth created you specifically with purpose and destiny, whether you're a beggar or whether you're a rich man. That's good. That's right. The question is, what do you do with it? Number one, God leveled the playing field through creation. The second way that God levels the playing field, I don't know if you know this, so I don't want to mess anybody up here. Just a little put you in a little secret. Everybody dies. I know some of you don't. Everybody dies. Death levels the playing field. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many cars you have, how many houses, how many wives, how many husbands, whatever it is. The playing field is leveled. You will die. It is, it is appointed for you to die, it says in Hebrews. Bring it. It says the rich man died. It says that the beggar died. Each one of us has a span of time. I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know what it looks like. It's not fair that some gets longer than that. It's not fair that I did a funeral for a three-year-old boy of a friend of mine. I don't understand. Is it more fair that I did a funeral for my grandmother who was 89? I, I, I don't understand. But I don't, I'm not limited by this sight of death because there's so much more to it. There's life. That's good. But the level playing field comes when God says every single one of us will die. The rich man who had it all died, it says. The rich man also died. The beggar who had nothing. So the time came when the beggar died. The third thing that we see where God levels the playing field is judgment. Judgment. 
So he levels the playing field in that he created. He levels the playing field in that every one of us has a lifespan and will die at some point. And then thirdly, he levels the playing field in this. He brings judgment. It says in Hebrews, that is appointed for every man to die and then stand judgment. Do you think you can live this life and get away with this life and do what you do in this life and not have to stand in accountability for it? A lot of people do. A lot of people do. But it says this, and gosh, powerful. The rich man stood in judgment. It says this. He died, the slide before, but it says buried in Hades where he was tormented. So he died, and his judgment brought torment. As opposed to the beggar, it says this. The angels carried him away to what we can interpret as paradise. Two different judgments. Now let's let's clarify very, let's make it real clear, because we're talking about some heavy stuff here. We're talking about judgment. And as I sit here, I judge all of you all the time. So if that is true, it's gotta be <laughs> no what <laughs> life is full of, of judgments that we make. God is a just and just uh, God, and he brings justice through his judgment. It's true. So The specific judgments that we see are two specific judgments. There's more, but there's two that we're talking about here. There's two judgments. One is this, the great white throne of judgment. This is the final judgment of unbelievers for their sins. Look, this is a place at the end of time where Jesus stands for those who don't believe in him and he brings judgment. It says this in Revelation 20, Then I saw the great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And they saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The author, uh, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. God is just, and there's this whole group of people that say things like this, I don't need you, God. There's times in your lives, maybe that you were in a place where you go, I don't, I don't need you, God. I don't want your help. I don't need you in my life. I'll take care of myself. And God, being the gentleman that he is, says, okay, I'll give you your wishes. He says, I'll give you your wishes. So when we stand before God in this great white throne of judgment, it's not those who believe in Christ, but it's those who rejected God and said, you know what? I don't need you. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you separation from me. Judgment. This great white throne of judgment for unbelievers. The second judgment that we see is a little more, is, is, is in specific judgments, is the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is this. You and I, when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we believe on the cross and what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago, that he died on the cross for my sins, and Jesus is my Savior, when that is the relationship that we come in with God, we don't stand in judgment unto death, we stand in, in, in judgment unto life, and it's this judgment that God looks at what we did and deals with us accordingly. What does that mean? It's resurrected believers in heaven will be judged 
punished for their works. Sin is not the view of this judgment as that it was paid for by Christ, but only faithfulness in Christian service. What does that mean? We look at, at, at Matthew 25, and, and, and we see where God says, look, to one he gave one talent, to another he gave three, and another he gave five. What did they do with them? That judgment is about what did God give you? And what did you do with it? See, if God is just, there's no way that God can give you what you have and that you won't be accountable for it. There's something about this that that I think we miss in the American church. We live in the top 99% of the world, 99 percentile of the world for money. There's a responsibility that when I stand before God, he's going to say, you live in one of the greatest nations in the history of the world. You had one of the access to some of the greatest wealth. What did you do with it? Yep. See, this accountability is that this, that God has given everyone in this building, I don't care what you're going through, what you're wrestling, but everybody in this building today has been given five talents, which is the most that he speaks of in Matthew 25. There's not a person in here that can't say that they haven't had an opportunity, that can't say that they don't have all these things in their hands to, to, to access, as opposed to, let's go to Syria and look at what's going on over there. And those people who hold maybe one talent. The Bible says very clearly that, that God will look at us and go, gosh, you had so many opportunities. What did you do with it? Yep. This is a judgment that we will stand to as Christians. It's not about heaven and hell. It's about what God asks us to do. 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's an accountability for what you do with your time. There's an accountability for what you do with your treasure, your talent, I, I, I keep coming to Pete. The way, I mean, if anybody doesn't know Pete, he's going to barbecue for us, but he, he does these phenomenal barbecues. But it's not just barbecue. I, I can go in somewhere and get barbecue. There's something about, there's a talent that God gave me, because if you've eaten his barbecue, you know he's talented, because I've eaten Mark's, and he's not so talented. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to eat your barbecue. That's not, no. But there, there's something about the way that he does it and loves to do it. There's something about the way that, 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 that uh, what's your name again? Uh, gosh. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, one of my best friends. <laughs> I'm think, I keep thinking, I kept thinking of your wife. I'm like, geez, Jeremiah. Uh, there, there's something about the way that God has given him the skill to create that is, is fantastic in his crazy mind. That's good. In each one of you. But God's saying, what are you doing with it? Who are you helping? How are you making a difference? See, there's two different judgments that we will stand under. Let's go back to these two specific truths that we're faced with in this parable. One we said is our direct relationship to God, intimacy with God, our up relationship. Two we said is our direct relationship with others, being alert to the needs of others, having awareness for others. Let's, let's look at those real quick. The rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day, his direct relationship with God, his intimacy with God was nil. There was none. 
It says this in Matthew 19, 24. Again, I tell you that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. We see this man with everything that you could ever want, everything that you dream of, everything that you would like to have, everything that you see when they drive by, every house that you dream of, and you're like, oh, that should be mine. I would love to have that, or what you think. But at the end of the day, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? How hard is it for a camel to go through the eye of the needle? Easier than for a rich man. This man was distracted, and I would take and and I would venture to say that distraction could almost be interchanged with, with wealth. Meaning this, if we are in the top 99, 98% of the world in wealth, let's take that word and say distraction. Because we are wealthy people. And in the distractions of the world, does it take away from our intimacy with God? Does the distractions of the world, do they take away from us entering into a relationship with God? Do the distractions of the world, of always trying to get, of always trying to please, of always trying to do, does it take away from the distractions? Do the distractions take away from our relationship with God? Absolutely. I was reading an article this week about kids and... um, yeah, as I was trying to get sent, I sent Chris articles to try to straighten her out to raising kids. So I was reading this one, and you guys know I'm kidding, right? Okay. No, I'm not. No, yes, I am. <laughs> um, and it, it was a fascinating article. Said It said this. It said, Let, we are so caught up in our kids not being bored as parents. And it's absolutely absurd. In fact, the whole argument of the article was let your kids be bored. See, when I was a kid, when I was bored, um, my, my parents never tried to rescue me from my boredom and say, oh, well, here's four things I've got set up for you, and here's the next dance recital for your sister, and here's the next thing for you, and I'm going to take you to do this because, I, God forbid, you be bored in the house. And the whole article has said this, the creativity of our children and what happens when we're bored is we start to go into these places of fantasy and learning and, and exploring and getting on our bike and going down here, and it just stimulates everything in our mind. But we're so, we so want to rescue kids from boredom that, that we've got to fill every minute of their day. And, and the psychiatrist and psychologist in this article said it's absurd. Let your kid be bored. So I was one of them the other last week. I think it was Hudson. I'm so bored. I said, good, be bored. <laughs> the psychiatrist said it's good for you. But there, there, there's something to this distraction in this place that we live. And this rich man was distracted by his wealth so much so that he missed every time that the opportunity of God came by his life. Not unlike so many of us in life. The rich man was dressed in fine purple and, 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 and luxury every day. The rich man's relationship with God was hopeless. It was hopeless. We see it in the scriptures. It says, so he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And, and, and sent Lazarus, send Lazarus to dip his tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in the fire. Think about that whole. He is sitting over here in, 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 in hell. He's in Sheol, this place called hell. And there's so much torment that all he wants is for Lazarus to dip his finger in the water, come over and place it on his tongue. And he has no leg to stand on to say this. Gosh, I don't deserve to be here. He can't cry out to God and say, I don't deserve it. Because where he is, is where he chose to be. 
Separation from God. God, I don't need you. It says this, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let them... Let him warn warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Think about this. This rich man has five other brothers, has this opportunity to bring the gospel to his family to see change. But because of his selfish nature, rejecting what God has for him, there are five other people that couldn't be impacted. How about you? How about me? Has my distraction ever taken me to a place that I, I just, other people can't be impacted by the hope of the gospel? Mm. Good. It goes on. The rich man and the hopelessness of his relationship, we see at the end of this, it says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in his manner, bad things. But now he is confronted here. Thank you. (laughs) And you're in anguish. This picture is just so vivid. The beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat. It's this metaphorical picture of of people today that, that have been beaten up, that have hurts, that have pains. People today that have, have, that have had to deal with abuse, have had to deal with difficult times. The picture of this, this, this poor beggar man sitting at, the, at the, the gate of the rich man and the dogs licking his sores, waiting for food to fall off so that he might eat, is a, is a prophetic picture of so many people in our world today that are hurting And it says this, though, Lazarus, direct relationship to God, his intimacy with God, is this. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Here's a man who had nothing and the dogs were licking his sores. And he had every right to be mad at God. Wouldn't you think? He had every right to say, this place isn't fair. He had every right to say, I can't believe I'm going through this. I don't deserve it. I can't believe, God, you took that person from my life. I can't believe you took that job from my life. I can't believe you took that woman or that man or that child or whatever it might be from me. I can't believe it. That's what Lazarus seemingly should say. But you know what he says? I don't understand why. You don't have to understand why. It's not God's job to tell you why. My kids want to know why all the time. And there's times that it's go, you don't need to know why. You just need to trust me. That's right. You don't have to have the answer. And this man who is sitting at the gate of the rich man, who is covered with sores, who seemingly is hopeless, has more hope than the man who has everything. Because he trusts the Lord with all his heart and doesn't lean on his own understanding. And let me tell you, I don't understand some things about my life. I don't like a lot of things. But I got to trust in the Lord with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding. Because my own understanding perverts my view. See, if you try to lean into your own understanding of why you're going through X, Y, or Z, you'll never figure it out. And you'll ask the wrong questions. 
and you'll ask questions like, God, when are you going to rescue me? God, when are you going to do this? God, when are you going to do that? As opposed to, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. The beggar, Lazarus, direct relationship to God, was hope-filled. The rich man was hopeless, had nothing. But the poor man was hope-filled. And we see it as the angels carried him to paradise. See, he, he sees life in a different, completely different plane. See, it, 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 it's this. It's, it's Ecclesiastes from beginning to end. You cannot fathom what God has for you. See, this man understood the totality of life, that it's not just about 20, 40, 60, 80 years on this earth, but it's about an eternity. Yep. And he understood his hope was there, not here. For some of you, for some of us, for me, we have to come to this place to real, of realization that my hope is not here because these things might not change. But my hope is there, the eternal life with Christ Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth. That's good. That knows my pain, knows my suffering, knows my hurt, and wipes away every tear. That's Jesus. That's what Lazarus understood. I don't feel sorry for Lazarus. I feel sorry for the rich man. It's a little upside down. The rich man dressed in his fine purple and all that he had. The rich man's direct relationship to others, of being alert and aware, he was oblivious. The key word it says that every day he lived this life of luxury, and every day at his gate was this poor man. And he never saw him. He never saw him. 324, I'm going to make up an address because if someone lives at this address, I don't know when I'm talking about them. 324 Magnolia, there's a woman that lives there that hurts every day because she lost a son. There's a woman that lives there that is, is metaphorically like this beggar with sores that the dogs lick and the pain just holding on. The reason I say 324 is this, because does 322 or 326 have any idea? In other words, the guy that lives to the left, do they know what's happening in the house next to them? Or the woman and the guy that lives to the right, do they have any idea what's going on in the house next to them? That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's saying. He said every day they went through the gate and this poor beggar was sitting right here and he knew nothing of his life. And every day we drive into our garages and we shut the garage and 322 is sitting here and 326 is sitting here and we're living our life and it's good. And 324 wakes up every morning in depression and hurt and pain because of loss in their life. And do you have any idea? Or do you even care? It says this in John 13. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This man didn't. Lazarus and his direct relationship with others. His survival. 
It was survival. See, the, the point is this. There are people that are, are around you that are in survival mode. They just want to get up each day. They just want to feel each day. There's this, this phenomenon that's going on with our children called cutting, and I'm sure you know about it. And, and when you read about cutting, if, if, if you have, don't know about it, they cut themselves just to feel because they're so detached from their emotions. And they just cut and cut as a teacher. I'm sure you see it. It's just, there, there are people that are just in survival. And, but Lazarus is, 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 is he's in this survival. But it's the survival that he understands who Jesus is. He has this relationship with God. And his understanding of survival is this, that my hope is there, not here. Yep. And for some of us today, we need to hear that one thing, that my hope is not here. My hope is there. Preach. My hope is Jesus. My hope is eternity. And this body will be gone today because we said the level playing field is this. We all die. But I have hope. I have hope. What do we see in the rich man's story? We see this. The rich man pays attention to Lazarus a little too late. That he sees this unabridgeable chasm too late. That he worries about his brothers too late. That he heeds the calling of Jesus too late. Why? He's distracted. He's distracted. He's blind. Blinded by money. Blinded by power. Blinded by stuff. What do we see about Lazarus? What does he understand? What do we see that he understands about his story? We, that This scripture that I talked about, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity to the hearts of men. What does that mean? Lazarus understood that it was but a moment, that his life was but a moment here on this earth, that this time was but a moment. It's not an eternity. And this time and this body will go away and be someday when we come into a relationship with Christ, if you have a relationship with Christ at the consummation will stand in perfection before God Almighty. It's good. And if not, we stand in hell, separation from God. Yeah. A place that we choose as we reject God the Father. Why was Lazarus able to live in the body, you know, the crazy world that he lived in? He had hope. Hope in Jesus. Some of you need to hear this today. I need, I'm preaching to myself. I have hope in Jesus. It doesn't matter what I feel, what I taste, what I can see, what, what the, everybody tells me. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. And when I put my hope in Jesus, there's these little victories, these little things that Jesus does to just, just feed my soul. Come on. It's Jesus. In light of this, what about you? Without an eye for Jesus or intimacy with God, our life becomes self-centered and callous. It's all about me. It's all about me. 
Jesus is asking us to open our eyes to what is right in front of us and open our ears to the simple command of the gospel. Others. To love God and to love others. The simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. To love him and love others. The gospel is the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You know the hope that Lazarus lived in was that. The gospel. The hopelessness is not understanding what the gospel is in your life. And the gospel is this, that some 2,000 years ago, Christ died on a cross for your sins and mine. His blood was shed so that you and I could have hope. So that you and I could spend eternity with the creator of heaven and earth. That's the gospel. And as we go through this Lent season, sorry, I'm getting a little bit long. As we go through this Lent season, everything points to Jesus. Hopelessness points to the gospel. Judgment points to grace. Death points to life. And all of it points to Jesus. Our hope and the glory of Christ. Thanks for listening to the Pacific Point Podcast. If you would like to partner with Pacific Point Church and our church plants, you can download the Pacific Point Church app at the App Store or visit us at pacificpointchurch.com slash give. At that same site, you can also watch and listen to previous sermons, read follow-up blog posts and extended notes, and even connect with Pacific Point Church on social media. We hope you are encouraged today.